0: And we have our analysts here at the back. Uh, We have Dan, Joe, Marshall, and Kevin. Uh, They'll be running our uh, analytics and responding to some of the poll questions and helping us out with that. So I'll turn the time over to Anne Marie Bickmore, and she's our speaker host.
1: Thank you, Adam. It's great for all of you to be here, especially right after lunch. I hope it was very enjoyable. Um, It gives me great pleasure to be the speaker host for this event. Sometimes we do speaker events and you have to learn a bio. I want you to know this is Kathy's bio that's written because I've worked with her for probably three years and <laughs> I, was I had to print out her bio. Um, she's a phenomenal person to work with and it's, it's a pleasure to have her here with us to share um, the successes that she and her team have had at Texas Children. So let me just tell you a little bit about her. Kathy is the director of Texas Children's Hospital Outcome and Impact Services, so TCHOIS, because we all need acronyms, um, which is dedicated to helping patients, families, and providers make better healthcare decisions using outcomes (coughs) data. Kathy's been a registered nurse for 15 years with a focus on pediatric heart disease. The last eight years, she has been focused on clinical outcomes research and quality improvements in congenital heart surgery. In the last two years, she has extended this work throughout the hospital. She leads a team of outcomes nurses, computer programmers, data architects, data specialists, and a statistician focused on collecting and analyzing clinical data outcome, outcomes data, excuse me, that can be translated into information for patients and providers. A key principle in the creation of the service was to reframe the pursuit of clinical outcomes data from the academic setting to the practical context of helping real people answer the real questions that they have about their healthcare as a nurse, as well as a patient and mother, Kathy views TCHOIS as a mechanism for patient and family advocacy and empowerment. And it is with great pleasure that I'll have Kathy come up. You did have a poll question, which to me is a a great poll. I I don't know how many of you still have your appendix. Oh, can you go back to the question so I can look at the question? (laughs) But the question was actually, how long does it take to have it removed? So we have one to two hours, two to three hours, four to five. Unsure would be for those of us who would be asleep and really unsure how long it was in that pleasant state. (laughs) And the answers are?
2: So So Kathy, what do you think? Good, good. You know how long it should take to do an appendectomy, (laughs) good. The second question is more interesting about how long it takes to actually get a child to the operating room to do just that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I want to thank Catalyst for inviting me to speak here today, and thank y'all for um, choosing this breakout session. I hope that it can be a time of mutual learning. As Amory said, I'm a nurse by background. Um, I do have an MPH, and I'm very interested in in outcomes, um, value-based healthcare delivery initiatives. You're going to hear from Michael Porter, who's um, a colleague of mine. Um, but we really, our whole platform is around being very practical with our data and how do we answer questions that families are asking, um, patients are asking as well. So with that, we'll get started. The other tidbit for me to share with you is, as Amory mentioned, I'm used to dealing with rare diseases. Um, So for example, in congenital heart surgery, we do about 1,000 cases a year in children and that's a pretty large program and that's in totalis. With appendectomy, that's one disease and we do 1,100 a year. So the scale becomes very different and very important when you're talking about data analytics, when you're talking about measurement. Um, the numbers of validations you have to do and routines um, from an analytic standpoint become very different. So I had to really adjust my thinking in how we were gonna scale what we did for a rare disease to a very, very common one. And it's still something we tackle with diseases in orthopedics and other high volume procedures. Um, I do think there are some common themes, though, and that'll be important. So this session is entitled Applying a Three Systems Approach to Improving Surgical Outcomes. Um, Let's go into the second poll question, as I mentioned. So how long does it take for a patient who arrives in the emergency room with appendicitis to get to the operating room in your organization? So they're showing up any time of day or night.
0: So we'll go ahead and give... 10 seconds for you to fill that out. The numbers are changing. It looks like the 36% come in with the four to six hour time frame.
2: Wow, that's awesome. That's pretty impressive. I'll tell you, at our organization, it takes 12 to 16 hours. That's how inefficient we are to get a, (laughs) and it's essentially actually a 45 minute procedure when you just look at the um, cut times. So we knew we had some really big opportunities for efficiency, um, decreasing variation, and really examining our practice. And I had the opportunity to talk with some families also about how that made them feel when they're sitting there waiting. And it was just eye opening about all the opportunities we had to just communicate better with families on why they were waiting for so long. All right. Should it, all right, there we go. So let me tell you just briefly about Texas Children's. Again, part of what I hope to do for you today is give you some real practical hints from where I stand. Um, We're a large organization. We're the largest children's hospital in the country. We have the largest primary care network. We also have urgent care facilities, community hospitals, and a health plan. So when we're thinking about data analytics and measurement, we have to consider all the elements in our integrated delivery system. So from a practical standpoint, again, how are we gonna measure a source of truth, You know, create a source of truth for appendectomy patients, one that our health plan believes and one that our hospital believes. And these are very important tactical things to understand if you're really gonna get buy-in from your providers and, and the administration. So we're a large organization, and we had just embarked on building an EDW. So we are one of the first pilot groups with appendectomy to utilize a data warehouse. Um, And we took this opportunity based on an early KPA that showed all the variation and the extreme costs of our care for appendectomy patients. We decided this would be a great place to focus um, for the surgical um, service line. So in general, I think most of us know that length of stay is a huge metric and one at least for appendicitis especially, demonstrates wide variation because so many people attack this problem very differently. And as I mentioned, we have 1,500 or 1,100 procedures we do annually, we have about 15 surgeons that do this operation. And when you look at how, they, how differently they do it, from the minute the call gets made that they have a child with appendicitis, from the time that they're choosing what's on their preference card to be using in the operating room, the variation is staggering. Um, Our OR availability is also problematic, so these are all the things that we know really impact uh, throughput for our patients. So interestingly though, the work that had been done around appendicitis really spanned about 10 years before we even started it, but it was largely in the clinical research realm. And for those of you that have done outcomes work for a long time, um, especially working with surgeons or other physicians, outcomes research It was just that. It was always in the academic research realm. It was retrospective reviews. We looked at data and it was on an Excel spreadsheet. And that just wasn't gonna work if we were gonna try to really explain what was happening for patients with appendicitis to the providers demonstrating the variation in care and then our um, administration as well. So we didn't have any real prospective data or a tool to prospectively (coughs) capture that data. We also didn't really have much of a team approach by way of multidisciplinary team outside of the surgeons. There really weren't nurses engaged. There wasn't the EC engaged. You know, it was by and large like, well, the EC didn't call me, and the surgery saying, yes, we did, you know, they called, and there was this finger pointing. So there wasn't really a lot of teamwork that was happening. And we definitely didn't have IT folks and analysts embedded in the teams. That was just a foreign concept. Um, we also, again, our methods for data collection were always after the fact. So not very powerful and frankly also not valid or reliable as well as much as prospective data can be. We definitely didn't have any specific guidelines for implementing care and minimizing variation. So we decided to really look at this and use the three systems approach that Health Catalyst brought to us and is really very practical. And without making too much of a plug, I I will say I think that was what attracted us to this partnership was a very practical approach at managing some complex problems. So we wanted to improve the quality of care for these patients. We also wanted to reduce costs. And frankly, that's a byproduct. Um, We looked at that and we just knew that if we improved, we would lower costs. And I think that's something that y'all hear about a lot, but I think it's really important to emphasize that you can't chase the bottom line. You have to chase quality and improve outcomes and then the costs will um, the costs will fall. It's important um, when you make decisions to think of things that way. And then we wanted to create a streamlined approach to every appendectomy case so that we could have minimal variation um, across our providers and the care that the patients received each and every time. You know, if you, one of our executives has a great story. He didn't spend 16 hours waiting to, for his son to have his appendix out, he waited two hours because he made a phone call. And that's just not quality. It should be like that for everybody. So we wanted to make sure that we had a streamlined approach um, and we wanted to demonstrate how order sets and variation can change a culture. And they really can. I mean, I've seen a dramatic change amongst our pediatric general surgeons. So here were the tools. We needed a data warehouse. I mean, we didn't have anything like that. We had a lot of data in our EMR system, but people could not get it out. Um, We developed a very advanced, population approach to looking at our appendicitis patients. As I mentioned, we have two, well, one and we're building our second community hospital. This allowed us to track all of our patients at our West campus and our main campus. So we can actually do some comparisons because we have different care models delivered at each in each uh, in each hospital. And we needed permanent integrated work group teams which we brought and evidence-based best practices. Um, I want to stress too that When I think about the strategy that we used or as we go forward, what those teams really needed, and again, the team was small because it was just the surgeons and we needed to augment them, but they just needed tools. They actually had the right spirit. They wanted to decrease variation. I mean, aside from maybe a few outliers, but they all saw the need and value. They didn't have the tools. And I think, as we think about what we can offer as a hospital, it's providing people that wanna do this work with the tools and not, letting it get caught up in um, a tremendous bureaucracy. And that is uh, always a challenge, but it talks to the need for governance, um, which no one likes to talk about, but is critical. So again, we applied this three systems approach, and by doing that, we were able to improve our measurement and analytic capability. I'll show you a couple of screenshots of our dashboard, which are pretty amazing. Um, And then we've created this permanent cross-functional team. Now, one of the things, and it'll be a lessons learned point, is this, that those teams don't just happen, and a lot of times there's a tremendous animosity initially between the IT team and the clinical team. They don't, there are reasons why they go into different professions. They don't think the same way, their brains don't work the same way, but when you start really opening up to the innovation that can occur from each one learning from another, then that's when really the magic starts happening, and then it's, To me, that's one of the most exciting things, but it's a very hard, long process to get there, and takes a tremendous amount of nurturing, and I always like to share that. You've got to be in this game, and I think about, again, what I want to share is quality is a contact sport. You've got to really roll up your sleeves. There is no magic bullet, and I think that was discussed at the last breakout session. There is no magic bullet. You've got to be willing to work and work at these teams really hard. Uh, deploys a data-driven approach to implementing care. So one of the examples I'll show you is that we had to implement an order set. Um, We had done some research early on looking at the peritoneal fluid in the abdominal cavity with children after appendicitis. And we found that it wasn't resistant, um, or that it was resistant to the antibiotics we were using as standard. So we were giving these antibiotics that weren't doing anything for complex appendicitis patients. So we identified the appropriate antibiotic, um, which is called Zosyn and um, we had to measure neutropenia, which is a decrease in your white blood cells, because that's a complication, a potential risk of this antibiotic. But after we did that, we were able to incorporate that into our order set and track the usage, and it went from 50% to 90% in probably four weeks. I mean, it was pretty remarkable, and now we know that the patients are getting the right antibiotic. So here's just um, a screenshot from one of our um, dashboard views in our appendectomy view application. This is an interesting one because it actually helps us compare um, charges on the bill to what the clinician codes in the operating room. And that was really important for us. When we stepped back to talk about how you measure, um, we had to get all the surgeons to agree on which codes to use. So we actually drew up a document. We had pictures of appendici- you know, appendices, at different stages, whether they were simple, complex, and they were all from the operating room, and then we assigned codes, and we put those in every operating room to make them consistent. And that wasn't the first thing we did, but what happened is later when we started pulling the data and it wasn't looking right, we finally convinced the surgeons that they needed to code differently. So a lot of people will ask about that, like, well, do you get back to documentation and close the loop? And you do, but it's hard, because a lot of times you gotta show them the data first and let them react and say that there's no way that that was true. And then you bring up the fact that you didn't code it right. So we had to then go back, and that was the other lesson learned and pain point that I'll share, is you do sometimes make two steps forward and take one step back as part of the process. You know, you think you're getting somewhere, and then. You realize you're not where you think you are, you, but be patient with the process. Um, so anyway, here what we're able to do is really just compare what the hospital bill billers are coding that goes out in terms of what type of appendicitis that they had and what the surgeons actually say. And for us, and when we're measuring clinical outcomes, it's really important to get the clinical diagnosis that the surgeon makes. But what was interesting is we um, have this labeled by provider. It's, it's de-identified right here, but I can see who's actually Um, doing well with their documentation, and we had one surgeon who was always, always not even changing his diagnosis, and he said, well, the coders are going to change it anyway. I do not need to modify my practice, and so we had to have a conversation, but but what's nice is the chief of the service could have that conversation, too, and he had the data to show it, so um, there are a few of us who have access to the unblinded information so that the chief of the service can have... Um, conversations around length of stay, readmission rate, and other indicators that we have that are surgeon and provider uh, based. We also did a rapid cycle improvement around our wound classification. So for those of you that work in the operating room, this is an important nursing indicator. It has a lot to do with billing, but essentially the nurses were coding that these were essentially clean or clean contaminated patients, and they're actually, if you can think about it, they're extremely dirty patients. I mean, they are not clean at all something really basic. But um, we saw hints of this in our NISQIP data, for those of you that participate in the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, but it wasn't until we drilled down using this tool that we could see how poorly it was being coded. And then we just did a QI project and got so much better compliance, and now they're 100% on how they should code uh, wound classification. And again, just another glimpse of our dashboard that allows us to really analyze volume, variable direct costs, um, readmission rate, length of stay, all those things. And we can look by simple versus complex appendicitis, by surgeon, by campus, by time. So we looked at the time distribution that these patients present to the EC, which was really important when we're looking at throughput. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about that at the end, because we've implemented a pilot using surgical advanced practice providers in the EC, and we needed to educate ourselves on what times do these patients tend to really show up and then target our uh, new providers there until we had more um, people um, hired on board. So um, the results were we did create uh, a really amazing platform through our data warehouse and our ClickView vis- uh, visualization tool for appendectomy patients. And I believe we've improved the outcomes. We have a lot more to do. Uh, I never feel like we're really there yet. But we're really looking at end-to-end workflow optimization. We've just started that. Strategically, we looked at the post-operative period, what the surgeons could control. Um, Having worked with surgeons a long time, I knew that I had to work and get them on board with things they could control. If we tried to tackle the EC right away, we just weren't ready, culturally, to do that. Um, It's nice, conceptually, to get everybody in a room talking to each other, but sometimes it just doesn't like that. It just doesn't work that way. And so we took it kind of piece by piece, and now we're able to do that full spectrum view. Um, but I think we had to teach surgery about this model and teach them what they didn't know before they felt good about moving forward. So these are just some of our results, 36% reduction in our post-operative length of stay. So for our simple patients, it's right around 24 to 30 hours and we had started at over two days. So we wanna get that under 24 hours and I'll tell you a little bit about what we're doing for that. We reduced our average variable direct cost 19%. So we did some financial analyses as well to see where our biggest cost drivers were. And even though there's a tremendous amount of variation in the operating room supplies, the way they're bundled for payment actually didn't have a huge impact. It's length of stay is the biggest driver for that. Um, And so we were able to reduce cost by reducing length of stay. We increased order set adoption by 36%. And as I mentioned, 50% increase of patients receiving the proper antibiotic. 19%, we decrease the time from diagnosis to surgery. So, again, that actually needs to be a lot better, and we're working on that, and I'll share that with you. And then we increase the accuracy of our surgical wound documentation. So, in terms of future plans, um, I'm super excited about this next iteration of what we've done. So we actually engaged our business process transformation team, which is our Lean Six Sigma group. And we did a big time study from the time the patient presents to the EC till the time they go to surgery. And we wanted to know how long and what was going on in each of those steps. And it was just eye-opening to find the delays. As I mentioned to you, it's like sometimes 10 hours, 12 hours, up to 16 hours before patients get to surgery. And what we found with some of the biggest hang-ups is the first call goes to the intern, surgical intern. Then the call goes to the resident from the intern. Then that resident has to call the chief resident, who then calls the attending. So in a teaching hospital, you have this model. We don't have that at our West Campus, and their times are a little bit shorter. But we found all these inefficiencies, um, and they were not effective. And And the other thing is the residents actually don't learn from that process. They're very frustrated by the process. So what we did is we processed MAP um, the the entire process and what we're doing now is actually applying the uh, a time-driven costing model so for those of you who have taken the um, Michael Porter and, and Bob Kaplan courses to really learn about looking at how we measure things like we don't know at our organization how much it costs to take care of a patient with appendicitis we know how much we charge them or the bill you know the, we are uh, payers but we actually don't know how much it costs so the next thing we're doing right now is we're working on a financial model Of how long, um, how much money it costs for each of these steps, and if you remove a person, you know, or you add in, like I mentioned there, a surgical hospitalist to help decrease the time between when the EC calls surgery, um, we're able to cost that all out, and it's pretty exciting. Um, So the pilot started a month ago, where we have surgical APPs essentially taking, working with the EC doctors, and then they call the attending directly, so they bypass like about six steps. So we're hoping that that will help us. The other thing that we're doing is we are actually implementing and monitoring our evidence-based protocol. So I mentioned that we had that and we um, are using it for certain elements, but there was a key algorithm and branching point um, in our evidence-based guideline that no one was using and no one was documenting. So I think the other practical challenge is how do you build in your metrics around using these order sets and really revisit them to see that they're used, because no one's using this and it's a great guideline, but people weren't using what we call the pediatric appendicitis score. If you have a certain low score, you get into a certain bucket. If you're equivocal, then you need to get an ultrasound, and there are certain scores, there's no ultrasound needed, and you go straight to the OR. Well, by and large, people get an ultrasound all the time, even if it's not indicated, because it makes them feel better. So I have surgeons that say, in fact, it was the same one who doesn't document well. He said, I will always get an ultrasound, and then I'll go to surgery, but I will will never change that. And so we're working with him again um, because we, don't, we use ultrasound way too much and it's costing a lot. So we have now built into our ultrasound order set the PAS score so that you are forced to put in what your score is so we can at least track who is using this, um, who is actually following the algorithm and who isn't. And that's important too because if we're gonna do this, we've gotta give the physicians feedback with data quickly. And I encourage you to think about that as you take this back to your organizations, you've gotta have rapid feedback loops with data, or you will lose buy-in. You know, they're gonna think, well, you made me stop using ultrasound, but you've never really shown me that it helped or hurt. So you've gotta really give them quick feedback. We're also implementing same-day discharge from our PAC use. So these patients that have simple appendicitis will actually be discharged from our anesthesia care recovery unit, um, which will really help, and then they'll get a follow-up call from a nurse the next day to make sure that everything went well. And then the final thing we're excited about is We actually are the um, first group in our organization to pilot a shared savings program with our health plan. So we've got someone from our health plan here, and we're really excited. Um, So we've negotiated this value-based payment strategy, and the clock started ticking August 1st, I believe, Chris. Is that right? August 1st. And we set some metrics, and one was decreasing length of stay by 15%. We have a patient experience metric where we just need to measure... Um, and pick a tool, because that's gonna be critical. Press doesn't really serve us well, because as you know, it's a sampling, so we might know about two patients. We need to know about all 300 patients that are in our health plan um, that are seen by them. So we're really excited. We're gonna be measuring um, success, or not uh, progress at every six month intervals, and depending on, um, and we built a sliding scale financial model, so if we meet certain metrics, then we'll get certain payouts into our um, PSO, which is our Physician Service Organization. One of the challenges will be how then to distribute equally and fairly the savings across EC, um, radiology, or surgery. So we're really excited about that, because it's something very new and, and different for us. So as I mentioned, in terms of lessons learned, cultural transformation takes time, and I love the saying that culture will eat strategy for lunch every day because it's really true. So you have to invest in changing your culture. And I really loved a lot of the messages today in the keynote speaker sessions about failure. You know, it's not gonna be perfect and you've gotta be willing to iterate until it's great. And you can't give up. And it's critically important to build relationships. If they trust you and they see that you really do want to do the right thing, but also understand their perspective, especially as the clinicians. They're under a tremendous amount of pressure, as you know, to produce, right? They have these RVU targets, and I don't know how it is in your organization, but it it is a lot of pressure for them. So being able to build relationships and understand where people are coming from is really important, Um, and humility, as Jim Collins mentioned, having humility. Um, And I'll be real honest, I think that is the challenge that sometimes I encountered with our IT counterparts is a sense of humility that they don't know clinical medicine and it doesn't work the way that they think it should work. You really have to tackle it the way it works. Um, And that's how you make change. So multidisciplinary teams are critical to success, of course. I think most people have, have bought into that by now. And a physician champion is essential. I can't stress that enough. If you don't have a physician that's helping lead this, it will not work. It's very, very challenging. And um, they really have to take ownership, especially with their colleagues. And data is essential to know the truth. When we did this process mapping that I just shared with you, it was eye-opening for our chief of pediatric surgery. He's a great guy, but he is data-driven. And unless you show him that you mapped this out and you saw all the inefficiencies and how much time, like I didn't get to share here, but we have it by minute, how much time was spent at each of those steps. And that's what made him say yes, I agree to having a, a hospitalist pilot, I, I will do it now. But we had to show him that first. Um, so data is essential to know the truth. And again, it also got rid of the finger pointing because you realize that there were some you know, inefficiencies on the EC side and on the surgery side and it kinda levels the playing field for everyone to say, we've gotta work as a team to get this right because none of us are getting it right alone. So data is essential to know the truth. And I think that's it, until questions and answers. So thank you all so much for your attention.
1: So Kathy, that was a fabulous, I don't know if my mic's <laughs> a fabulous presentation. And again, there are, um, it's an opportunity that I hope all of you took to put questions into your application. Dan, do we have questions that, for I Kathy? I have not
0: seen any questions at this point.
1: So, I don't. Okay, so. Alrighty then. There are. So maybe we'll go back to the old-fashioned way.
0: There it is. Thank you. Okay,
1: great. Never mind. We <laughs> won't. We won't revert back.
0: So the first question is, um, with five votes, were any predictive analytics used in this project? If so, could you describe?
2: <coughs> so I would say not for the first phase, um, but the second, when we talked about the surgical hospitalist pilot, so we only have one APP that we were able to dedicate, one full FTE to this. So covering a busy EC 24 seven with one FTE was gonna be impossible. So we took the data that we showed in terms of where, when um, on a 24 hour mark, these patients were coming in and then we decided and we designed our pilot around their peak times. And so I'd say that we are getting to do that more and more. But we, you know, we're know, we still working on building those models in um, so they can be automated. So right now we export our data and we do the modeling outside. What I'd love to see is us be able to really build those models into our daily application. It's a good question.
0: Okay. Another question, are you doing TDAB using a cost accounting system or manually?
2: For the, um, the T, I guess it's the TDABC. Yeah. Yeah, so right now it's manual. It's painful. <laughs> it is painful. So there might be some people in the audience who I think are familiar with. I don't know if it's her. <laughs> um, so we are uh, partnered, we're colleagues with MD Anderson and their innovation center, and they've done a lot around TDABC, and we've talked to them. So they have a software tool. We haven't convinced, it's very early, like very preliminary that I'm pushing the envelope a little bit to show them this because I don't think we've had full buy-in into the model because it's so labor intensive. But what I'm hoping is people see that you can uncover costs that you never would have seen before. Like no one ever can had quantified that resident attending interaction. No one ever said it was four times and it's this. it takes this long and then it costs this much. So we're going to be able to show some, I think, some pretty remarkable cost data, and then hopefully convince them, and then maybe one day we'll buy some software that make it easier. (laughs) But yeah, it's all manual by now.
0: I have two questions that are very similar, so I'm going to pull them together. Um, How many users access the dashboard? How often is it viewed, Mm -hmm. and who manages that application?
2: So a lot of that question is around governance. So we have, in our model, a clinical data specialist that's a nurse with a master's that's either in business or an MPH that likes data, and she's partnered with a surgeon lead and an architect. And it's that triad that's in the data the most, really refining, um, making sure it's accurate, making sure that the metrics are what we need, adding new metrics as we need them, Um, I, and then like, so that's kind of, I'd say, the core team. I have access to it, and the chief of the service, and then some other key quality people that work in pediatric surgery, um, and then some quality leadership. Who doesn't have access is the entire surgical, uh, pediatric surgery division. They don't have access yet. Um, We're still not 100% comfortable with it, only because the data has, We've had to go through some upgrades to our warehouse and some things like that. So we wanna make sure we are fully solid. And we have to think of different delivery options. So we actually have a PDF that's generated to create these provider-specific reports. And it's all these little steps that we're still in the process of doing. So I would say people are in it every day, more than once a day. I would say probably constantly maintaining it, looking at it. Specifically, the architect lives in IT. I pay for the data specialist from a resource perspective. that's how we share the resources. I Hope that answered the question. Whoever asked it, is, did that kind of work for you? Okay.
0: How much time investment were you requiring from providers in establishing your analytic focus?
2: So I would say, um, hmm. I'll, t- I'll answer the question in a couple of ways. One is we didn't have to tell them to focus on the disease and improving because they already know it's a problem. Like the, the real leaders in there understand that it's a high volume procedure with a lot of variation. Um, but when we kicked off the teams, they had to meet once a week at least for an hour with our technical team and, and for any physician, but I would say especially for the surgeons who have to manage their block times, an hour a week is actually quite a lot of time. And so they had to be able to commit to that. And then outside of that, emails and discussions. So it's a significant portion of time for them to commit to doing this. But we've taken the approach that the, of pairing that person with a data specialist. So she, our lead surgeon, actually um, will delegate a lot of the validation and a lot of the work to the data specialist who then can iterate with the architect back and forth because they sit near each other. Um, and that's been a real big help so that we don't have to spend or have the surgeons spend hours and hours and hours of their time because that's also very inexpensive. I mean, very expensive (laughs) for them to, for using a surgeon time to go through charts. It's not a good use of time or money.
0: Another question. um, Where did you encounter resistance?
2: (laughs) You know. We only have 10 minutes. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you know what was, interesting is um, the data actually showed what the providers knew and believed. Where we struggled was with some of our administration or some of our executive leaders in the quality department who heard anecdotal evidence about, through patient experience, like they only heard the grievances about someone that had to wait 16 hours. But actually, even though that's true, when you look at the whole cohort, it wasn't really validated with the data. So I would say that we still have resistance where there's a group of people that really don't believe that um, they don't really believe that we're doing as good as we are with appendicitis. I mean we have a long way to go, but we've actually made a lot of progress. And so one of the barriers is we have people who still don't believe the data and they're in significant leadership positions, and that makes it really hard. Um, for the providers in terms of feeling good about what they're doing, because they have the data and they're like, look, we're doing this work. And you have someone who's saying, well, I don't really believe that because I get all these complaints. But again, those are anecdotal, one-off things. Again, not that there's not some value there, but, but as we've seen today, you've gotta look at the whole picture and you gotta look at all the data together. So I'd say that's a barrier. And then the typical, like sur- there are certain surgeons who wanna always order that ultrasound and always wanna do it their way um, and that's a challenge and I think time from uh, the administrators have been very supportive about allocating time but it's still very it's a very imprecise way that we allocate time for surgeons to work on this type of activity so that's a barrier
0: are we still good with time
1: we, we are still good
0: with okay. time
2: Can I do a couple more questions
0: um, the next question is define the triple approach
2: the three system Well, I will be fully transparent here because (laughs) I believe in that. Um, I think that is a model that Catalyst brought to us. And I think, practically speaking, it's use data, minimize variation, you know, and I can't even think I'll think about the third one. But these are practical things that we all know to do. Measure your performance, analyze your data, and, you know, standardize your care. And that's – it's not – It's actually not complicated. And so I would say that is really the three systems approach that we were able to adopt that Catalyst, I think helped codify. I mean, again, what I really enjoyed about our partnership was it's a very practical approach to what, frankly, most people know what they need to do on a daily basis. But in order to scale this work, you need a language. And I think it gave us, that terminology gave us a common language to share how we would do this.
0: How were anesthesia and/or OR capacity management involved in your analysis?
2: Mm-hmm. So we have an, a, a steering committee that has our director of—it's it, so big—that <laughs> um, our our senior VP over finance, who's uh, sponsoring our shared savings, he kept getting mad at me when I wanted to add more and more people to the steering committee. But I was like, you know, this is how many people it takes to take care of these patients, and you got to get them all in a room. But um, So our head of perioperative services is there, our medical director from the OR is there. The other thing that this shared savings pilot has done is aligned a lot of different quality initiatives. So even within surgery, there were five groups tackling the same problem five different ways, all asking for data about the same thing, all asking for resources to do the same thing. And what we were able to do was say, okay, can we take a, just let's stop, and let's look at what everybody's doing and where we're trying to go and then let's systematically work together. And we were able um, to do that. Anesthesia is considered a hospital-based service in our department, so uh, I mean, in our hospital. So they were participatory in terms of the process and what we need when it comes to the shared savings. I'm not sure if they'll participate because they're considered hospital-based, but we do have to have their engagement because we can't run the operating room absolutely without the anesthesia team there. So they're part of our executive uh, steering committee as well.
0: So, so, we have a question that's bubbled to the top pretty quickly. Oh, gosh.
2: Um, it's about the three systems approach. <laughs> <I don't know.
0: laughs> no. Okay. Were any predictive analytics used in this project? If so, could you discuss? Yeah. Did we do that one? We did. Okay. We did. I apologize.
2: I mean, it wasn't very sophisticated. Hopefully, I can report back differently, but we're getting there. Yep. It, you know, we've been working on this for three years, and I'll say we're finally getting to the point where we feel like we have a stable measurement platform to be able to do that. I think that's the other thing that's very hard to explain to our executives and administrators is patience with the process. And I'm not saying it needs to be delayed, but you've got to spend the time to get it right up front. You know, it's that, you know, measure twice, cut once. I feel like we're always in the habit of, you know, never measuring and cutting 50 times, you know, and to change the culture means you stop, you look at your data, and then you move forward. So we are teaching them how to do that as we get better and better data but we didn't have we didn't have any data to start with so now that we've got that we can definitely um, do more predictive modeling and that i see that being discussed more and more
0: we're loaded with questions so i have another one for you can you elaborate more on the difference between it and clinical thinking
1: oh <laughs> <laughs>
2: that was a can of worms. i know I was telling someone at dinner the other night that I remember like in my computer science three class like building a, a game with logo. I don't know if anyone <laughs> remembers that coding that you had to do a long time ago. But um, I just, what I find is that um, when I work with my IT partners and I love them, they're very, you know, I say one thing and they hear that and that's what they build. There isn't a lot of out-of-the-box thinking that happens and I'm not saying that's that's typical of all analysts, I'm saying where we were in our culture. We were very much a, and still are to some degree, a ticket generating IT, you know, put your request in, I got your ticket, I'm gonna build that. Oh wait, you wanna make a change? Put another ticket, I gotta do that. That is not how this works. It has to be iterative, it has to be sitting next to your architect talking, it has to be them understanding, you know, medicine isn't in a box, as you know. I mean, clinical medicine does not Human body doesn't operate that way. It's a spectrum, and where I find the challenges are, is that my IT partners and I say that very lovingly because I have great ones. They just think very black and white. You know, they think very, very black and white, and so much of medicine is gray, and so much of what we measure is gray, and that's very frustrating for them. And I get that. Um, it is frustrating, and we as clinicians have to be more disciplined to. Document what we believe, define what we believe, and they don't, clinicians don't like doing that either. So we have to, but when we meet in the middle, it can be really um, exciting. And that's where I do think change is ignited when each group thinks a little bit differently than they're used to thinking. So I hope that helps.
0: Really
2: yes. And we implemented it well, I think, with our first application with the Appy tool. I think where it was became difficult was when we tried to operationalize this work. Um, and that's where we're still struggling with making it more absolutely of an agile process. But absolutely.
0: motivates executives to fund such a team promptly, not two budgeted years from now? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Um, I really believe, and I've heard our CFO say this, that um, he believes that if we improve care and improve outcomes, it'll reduce the cost, and that's why he's willing to fund it. He has seen time and again, just through little AQI, which is our... um, uh, advanced quality improvement course. He has seen over the years how much we've saved, how much we've improved. And I you know, frankly was floored when I heard him say that uh, because I know how much he, he looks at those uh, financial metrics, but I do believe it's our culture. I mean, we're, and we're still getting there and we're not perfect, but I believe at the, if at the top of your organization, your C-suite, they believe that improving outcomes reduce costs, then you can, you can get that.
1: one more okay Okay. okay.
0: how does your this might be a large one so i'll I'll share it and we'll go from there how does your organization approach data governance does it hinder or help data-driven improvement initiatives
2: so um, it's a really key question and i kind of alluded to it and i will honestly say i don't believe we have an effective we don't have a true data governance structure the way I would envision it to be to make this a much more agile um, process, but it's critical because you're gonna start measuring things. You're gonna start defining things. You're gonna be held accountable to certain metrics. I mean, that's what's gonna be key with the shared savings. The providers are now accountable to how we're defining an episode for appendectomy. And right now, we don't really have a governance of who gets to decide, um, and then who, uh, who makes those final decisions. So it's really important and I was just sharing with some of our executive leadership that I think we're gonna have to develop some type of level of authority structure where we know that if I'm signing off on appendectomy outcomes, then this is how we're defining everything and I stand behind it. So it's a really important question. And I know that was, uh, it's, it is a big question, um, but it's something to consider very, very early on. But it's not, uh, it is not at all easy, so.
1: Kathy, it's been a wonderful session. Thank um, you. I appreciate the analysts. And your input, in the last two minutes, if on your lessons learned you could do the choose one thing, as well as the survey on what you thought of the session, that would be great. Our next session in this room begins at 2.30. Of course, we'd love for you to all stay. uh, But thank you again. And Kathy, it was wonderful. Thank you for giving us your time. Thank you all so much.
2: (laughs)